Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of the queer vampire cycle as recommended by Terry Maynard of Gaily Dreadful, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up the theme and the month with Catherine Bigelow's 1987 film, Near Dark. Uh, Apologies to everyone for my lateness on this one. If you saw my Facebook post um, when I was watching Near Dark uh, on I Do Movies Badly, then you um, know that I was on vacation up until this recording is Thursday, so up until yesterday evening. Um, And so I um, was up in the Adirondacks um, for kind of just an escape from the concrete jungle of New York City and just kind of one last hoorah before, um, you know, work starts back up again, you know, New York City and a lot of places in the country are reopening, people are slowly returning back to work, so my wife and I wanted to kind of get away before we um, returned to everything and just uh, wanted to kind of uh, get out and recharge our batteries, basically, but I did watch the movie while I was up there and did intend to record the episode while I was up in the Adirondacks, but um, ultimately just figured, uh, you know, I was on vacation, so I was going to continue being on vacation. So I am back now and um, recording this episode and posting it a little bit late, so I apologize for that. Um, but based on the numbers of downloads for the episodes this month, I don't really know if anyone's going to really be that upset by uh, the delay in the schedule. But um, Near Dark uh, is the, the final stop on this journey through the queer vampire cycle, and um, if you have been listening to my previous episodes, you've known that I am a little bit, I have been a little bit frustrated trying to fit um, a film into a perfect metaphor, which has not been the case, and is probably very arrogant of me, and just a kind of a, a, a strange quirk of myself, just kind of hoping or wanting, uh, you know, a film to take place, and that does take place in a certain time, in a certain place, to kind of be a, a perfect encapsulating metaphor, and, and that's not always going to be the case, and that certainly hasn't been the case for um, Fright Night and The Lost Boys, especially when we are dealing with the perspective of such as a queer person watching these films that were released in the 1980s um, in the midst of Reagan's America, basically. So it can't be a perfect metaphor. It, it was they, None of these were intended to be perfect metaphors, so I fully admit that that is a quirk of mine, that uh, the frustrations that I've maybe expressed on these episodes have been uh, solely relegated to me, and I'm sure many of you who have listened have maybe disagreed with my assessments, my reads, and my conclusions, and that is totally fine. Um, that is the point of this podcast, is to... Uh, say that your opinion and your interpretation is valid because none of us uh, are, are experts, even if we are enthusiasts. And so, um, I, I, but I, but I do have to admit that Near Dark was, as Terry described it, it's a gnarly film, and it's a, it's probably the most problematic of all three of these that I have covered so far. When you come at it from the perspective of a queer person who is watching this film and kind of seeing his, her, or their reflection. Uh, or their, uh, his, her, or their identity reflected in the screen. But before I get into that, I do want to 
just talk a little bit about Near Dark as um, uh, even just as a genre film and the experience of that because it really is a remarkable, if not drastically upsetting film to engage with. Um, I had seen this movie before um, and I was reminded of its greatness once again. I mean, this was not Catherine Bigelow's uh, directorial debut, but her solo directorial debut. I believe that the feature that she did before this was done with somebody else. So this is the one that she did on her own. And it's a remarkable achievement, I think, up there with, I'd say, Ridley Scott's Alien, not just in how um, uh, how effective of a genre film it is, but I'm amazed by these people, these directors who are able to convey and craft such a sense of, a, a saturating sense of casualness, of um, kind of a working class ethos, um, how they can craft a film where each scene kind of feels like it is both improvised and their characters so lived in. Um, there's something amazing about um, the, the way that all the crew work together and speak with each other on the Nostromo in Alien and how um, their little linguistic quirks or tics kind of speaking over each other, kind of like, you know, asking for clarification, even just the, hmm, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, it feels like these people know each other and everything has been this way for such a long time. There is nothing that's overly dramatic about it. Like, it almost kind of feels like Ridley Scott just kind of put a camera down on an actual spaceship and recorded what was happening. There's a documentary feel to it. Um, not necessarily, or, or not just in terms of how he films things, but how everyone interacts with each other. And I felt that way with Near Dark, too. I felt that there was really a lived-in feel to these characters, specifically the vampire characters. There is kind of some falseness or 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 kind of movie drama to the the human characters um and the situation that they face but these 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 vampire characters you know uh, highlighted specifically by you know bill pullman lance henriksen um jenny wright uh and jeanette goldstein and, and i suppose you can throw in uh joshua john miller you know little homer in there as well but they they feel like i mean they are depicted as sort of a a, a perversion of the nuclear family if you will and they feel like a family and how they hang out with each other how they kind of bicker with each other how they lounge and sit and dress and just even in the scenes when they are relaxing with each other i mean when they're playing poker in the in the motel um in which they find um they stumble across Caleb's uh, sister and father um, and just smoking cigarettes and playing cards with the bullets and the guns and the table. It just kind of, you get the sense they've done this countless times and in the universe they have, you know, they're vampires. They've been living for probably hundreds of years. We at least know that, uh, that Lance Henriksen's Jesse Hooker has been, you know, he says he fought for the, the South in the Civil War. Um, and you just really do get a sense of a, a routine and of worn like a, a worn life basically and of a, a pattern and just how many cars have they stolen in their time on this earth how many hotels have or motels have they stayed in how many people have they killed how many cigarettes have they smoked how many things and and then have they repeated ad nauseum over their time and, and in a way it kind of i know this sounds weird generates a little bit of sympathy or empathy for them at least in the sense of like yes they are cold-blooded killers um, and they are vile individuals, but also, um, immortality, like, how boring can that be? Maybe that's just me, but you, you do get the sense, like, and, and even when they're at the bar during that horrific scene, which I'll touch on in a little bit, 
um, just how, you know, uh, Homer is kind of not just sitting on the table, but he's he's lying down on that tabletop, and they are just, you know, like, they're sitting there like they don't have a care in the world, because they don't, because they know these humans, these Bart patrons, are no threat to them, and you feel that from their actions, from just how casual and natural they are with each other. It's such a remarkable directing achievement, and I'm not sure how to do it, you know? This, this, this kind of worn leather feel to everything you know the horror films from you know the the early 2000s were criticized a lot and rightfully so i mean you think of like marcus nisbell's uh, texas chainsaw massacre that they are these highly polished films that um spend so much money on trying to make things look dirty and sweaty and it just it feels overproduced you know they, they can't actually duplicate the feeling of toby hooper's you know original because toby hooper's original was low budget shot in pretty awful conditions and just really bare bones trying to scrape things uh, together and you have something like you know marcus nispel who is a very flashy music video director before he started directing feature films trying to fake this the sense of, of kind of putridness putridity is that a word I don't know, uh, stuff that is putrid, basically. And it doesn't feel right, but Near Dark feels like it. I mean, Near Dark feels like Catherine Bigelow, once again, just kind of set a camera down in this bar or in this hotel room and watched these vampires live and kill and feed, basically. And it's it's kind of uncomfortable, but but I, I say that in a, in a weirdly admirable way because of how natural this universe feels. Um, and how kind of uh, naturally Caleb fits into it, even though Caleb is, you know, is a, is a human, uh, basically. Um, and so I, I really am admiring of that, but I'm also admiring what uh, Bigelow and, and uh, you know, her co-writer Eric Red did with blending these genres together of a Western and a horror film at the same time. And I'm going to, I won't quote uh, from this one specifically, but I, I will I will link to it on the Facebook page, and I highly encourage that you read it. It's an, an article which is, I don't think it's an academic paper, but it's a summary of an academic paper um, called uh, uh, Vampires, Indians, and the Queer Fantastic, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. It's from this website called uh, The Glorious and the Grotesque, horror cinema of the 70s and 80s, which seems to be a collection of academic meditations on horror films. And this one is, is kind of a summary of this paper um, that is uh, talking about Near Dark. Um, and it goes into great detail, or, or more detail than I'm going to go into, about how uh, Near Dark is not just a, a good Western and horror film, but also how it subverts a lot of expectations or a lot of archetypes uh, of the Western genre. And um, and that's really interesting too. And it starts with this idea of, in a Western film, that you know, sunlight is is the life giver. You know, everyone. That's when everyone is working. That's when business is going on. That's when there is safety. Basically, you know, in in a Western film, when it's dark outside, you don't know what is lurking out in the wilderness, out in the wild. You know, it could be wolves. It could be coyotes. It could be wild animals. It it could be people. It could be bandits. It could be. Um, hostile indigenous people um you know there there could be anything lurking in the dark and it's only when there is the sun in which you can see everything in which there is real safety and in this one that subverts that because you have these vampire characters who they live during the night it is the sun it is when it is the, the peak of the day that is the most dangerous to them and in, in gnarly brutal fashion too how we see some of them get burned and explode and that kind of thing 
Um, so the, so the, the nighttime being the safe thing and the, and the sun being the dangerous thing is quite an interesting subversion. And, and also the subversion of um, civility or, 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 or the town, you know, a collection of people being um, safe or dangerous. You know, this was a great thing. This was one of the many great things that Unforgiven did um, by subverting a lot of Western tropes, you know, because uh, in... in in Unforgiven, it's a, it's the wilderness, which is the peaceful place, and in, in which um, Bill Money, I believe Clint Eastwood's character's name is. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, but you know he lives out in the in the wilderness by himself. There is peace there. There is um, life there, and it is the town, uh, which is the the place of perversion, basically of drunks and of. Uh, violence and that kind of thing. Whereas in most westerns, you know, the town is where civilization is. The town is where people go for safety, for community, for commerce. And in Near Dark, you know, for uh, I guess you could say that for the vampires, the town is where they want to be because that's where people are. That's where they feed. But it's not a it's not a thing of safety. When as a viewer and watching these vampires go into a town where there's a lot of people around, you don't think safety. You think there is going to be some bad shit going down. There's going to be death. There's going to be blood. And that's that scene in the bar, which is so brutal and so like the tension, the way that it builds is so effective. And I think, but by the because Bigelow doesn't add a lot of flashes and bangs to it, you know, the soundtrack is just the, the, the kind of barely heard song that's playing on the jukebox. The score doesn't build to anything. We just have the death the, and kind of the flippant and casual attitude towards death being conveyed by our vampires in the environment right there. You know, there, there's not attention drawn to it from non-diegetic sound or anything. It's just where they're witnessing this macabre bloodshed and it's kind of horrifying and upsetting but in that bar you know you think of um i mean my wife and i just started re-watching uh well re-watching for me watching for the first time for her deadwood and what is you know you know what are the two most popular places for people to congregate in deadwood you know it's 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 Al Swearingen's The Gem, or it's um, the other guy whose, uh, his name I'm forgetting, but he's, he's, he's got a bar and he's got the casino, but those are where people congregate, you know, that's where community is, that's where, you know, I don't want to say that's where safety is necessarily, because there's a lot of violence and fights and what have you, but that's where people go, that's the center of things. You kind of get the sense of um, there is, if not safety there, then there is camaraderie there there is a gathering place you know in the gem is also where a trial happens for the guy that shot um you know wild bill hickok sorry if you have not watched deadwood spoilers for a show which is at this point almost two decades old and also it happens early in the first season but whatever um but there's a sense of like there is commerce and civility and humanity being humans and more than just their basic instincts uh, happen in these places and I, I know you can push back but that's also where fucking happens and drinking and that kind of thing and that is people giving into their basic instincts but it is coming outside of uh, from the dust from the desert from the rain from the mud from the elements and being human basically but in near dark coming inside to this bar means certain death for these humans and yes there is the one that uh caleb lets escape but it's just they are thinking that they're going <laughs> they're going to be you know having a, a good night um having a few drinks enjoying themselves the safety of other people in an environment in which there are others who are like them uh surrounding them and then this vampire family comes in and 
that safety is shattered, that idea of being surrounded by people who are like you is thrown out the window, and what instead happens is not just not indulging in alcohol or sex, but in blood. And there's a really interesting subversion going on there. And and this and rewatching this scene, the last time I saw Near Dark was probably got to be ten years ago. Um, I remember thinking it was a really great scene, but watching it again, I was thinking it's really great in how it made me so uncomfortable because of how flippant these characters are towards their own horrific actions. You know, um, you know, with a with Bill Paxton's character. Um, holding back the arms of Caleb so the guy that he just pissed off could punch Caleb in the stomach and in the face instead of him and just how he's laughing about it and you know getting shot doesn't mean anything to them and slitting the throat of a waitress and draining her blood into a cup and drinking it doesn't mean anything to him there's such a gleeful apathy towards these people's lives that I was very emotionally unsettled while watching that scene. It reminded me a bit, I'll be honest with you, of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, a film that I was very impressed with um, when I first saw it. And and when I say I first saw it, I mean the only time I saw it, because it's not a film that I feel like I need to revisit. It's deeply unpleasant, and it's so deeply unpleasant because of how effective it is at crafting a sense of of apathy towards the pain of the people that Henry is torturing and not letting us know the motivations necessarily of Henry, of just observing what he's doing and not casting judgment on him or not explaining why he's doing it, but just observing it. And now we know why these characters are doing it. They're vampires. They have to feed. We get it. Genre archetypes. Um, But we don't really learn about their backstories, you know, aside from just the superficial stuff, you know, uh, Hooker is, uh, you know, fought for the Confederacy, and um, Homer is probably the one that was the original vampire that turned all of them, or at least was the first one, um, and he is, he's an, an adult mind stuck in a child's body, but we don't delve too deeply into them, and so we don't, um, we, we, we don't, we don't have any context as to why they are doing this to these people specifically, you know, there's a, um, it's just devil may care. And it, it, even though these people in this bar are nobodies, you know, we, we feel for them more than we would for the teens in a, a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street film. These are, they are disposable, but also the gleeful um, menace that these characters have while they are killing them kind of makes us feel for these nobodies, you know, because it's like they are, you know, not that they're nobodies in the sense of Redridge, but like they're nobodies, leave them alone kind of a thing. Um, and so just how, how unsettled I felt while I was watching that film was such a, you know, give such credit to Catherine Bigelow for directing it because it's just like, oh my God, I, I can't even imagine how one directs that scene. Um, and, and how you're also weirdly drawn to it because of how charismatic um, Bill Paxton's character of Severin is. He's fucking awful, and yet there's something about his laugh and his, um, the way that he toys with his prey before he kills him, which is like, I can't, I, I, I'm, I'm upset watching this, but I also can't look away because of how magnetic he is. And this ties into all the things that I've been, uh, or, or some of the stuff that I've been talking about with Fright Night and the Lost Boys already, this idea of how interesting these characters are and how they're 
vile, despicable, and, and these ones even more so than than um than David and his crew in The Lost Boys or Dangerage in Fright Night. Um, you know, Dangerage we actually kind of liked um, because of how he stood apart from the boring suburban environment. These people are killers and are objectively morally bad, and yet we can't look away from who they are and what they're doing because of how they're very good at it and because of how much they stand apart from this southwest kind of country atmosphere. I also have to give this film credit because it's, it takes place in an, in an environment because of how it is a, also a western, that it doesn't take place in where you'd think something like this would happen. You know, it's not the, the waspy suburbs like in Fright Night, or it's not the, uh, you know, a west coast kind of metropolitan area of Santa Carla like in uh, The Lost Boys, or it's, it's not even taking place in a, it, it's taking place far away from an urban atmosphere. It's taking place in, you know, Texas and Oklahoma and these barren wastelands. And despite the fact that it is taking place in an area of the country in which um, is kind of sparsely populated and sparsely represented on film, this film doesn't talk down to those characters. It doesn't condescend to these characters just because they are from Oklahoma or Texas. Um, the film does not make them out to be less than um, their struggle is not any less than uh, those that struggle from someone who might be a, a main character from New York City or from LA or from Chicago. You know, their life, though simpler, um, is no, uh, you know, it's no less worthy than than a big city character. Basically, you know, like it's it's basically. I think what I'm trying to say is, the film does not suppose that um, country bumpkins are. Um, fine to kill because they are country bumpkins like are their deaths as I just said with the bar scene their deaths are in a way even more horrific because of how they might even be more innocent because um, they are far away they are outside of civilization they are minding their own business and then a bunch of vampires come along and um, slaughter them mercilessly um, and some of the cinematography in this film is is absolutely uh, amazing and just so evocative of darkness and that contrast and loneliness. And, it, and it's, it's really kind of a wonderful, naturally acted um, film that I really have to give Catherine Bigelow credit, as I said. Um, but now that I've kind of delved into why this is a, a great kind of subversion of a, of a, a Western we have to get to this idea of the imperfect metaphor that I have been yearning for, but it is kind of out of reach. And that is, you know, if you are a, a queer person who is watching this film and seeing yourself reflected in the queer coded characters of the vampires, then you have, as um, Terry has said, a much more problematic reading and experience because more so than in Fright Night, more so than in Lost Boys, the vampires in this are vile, irredeemable characters. Um, and once again, happening in 1987, this is the peak of, you know, Reagan's America, and you have a character in Caleb who um, demonstrates more explicitly than in any of the other two films that I've watched, maybe Lost Boys, um, demonstrates sort of in his physiology or physiognomy, Physically, he, his, his symptoms of turning into a vampire and his experience certainly seem to, more explicitly than those other films, 
mirror the experience of someone suffering from AIDS in the late 80s or early 90s America in the sense of, you know, his face is kind of very pale and he's got bags under his eyes and he's very sick. And even even the scene in, you know, when he's trying to catch a bus to get back home after he's been, you know, um, after he quote-unquote, escapes from the vampires for the first time, and he's in that bus station, and the police officer is kind of hassling him. And the way that this police officer views Caleb with scorn, even though he doesn't know anything about him, you can tell the scorn comes from just the look that Caleb has. He's sweaty, he's hunched over, he looks sick. This police officer is judging him based on his experience, and you can so completely see how that could be a person judging an AIDS patient um, in the 80s, just like, you look different, you look sick, you are a degenerate, and I want you far away from here. That experience was at the front of my mind when I was watching that interaction. Um, and But this, this becomes problematic because, once again, these vampire characters are vile people. The idea is, you know, not just metaphorically that we have to get rid of, of this vampiric infection to return you to this heteronormative um, American nuclear family system, um, but also the metaphor becomes uh, much more explicit when that is done via a blood transfusion. You know, when, when AIDS was so, for the most part, kind of misunderstood, but there was this idea that it was something in, you know, something in the blood, and this idea that, a, you know, a, that, that you have to expel it um, to become normal again, to become cured. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful and, and, I would say, painful metaphor, because basically this film is, is, is depicting um, an other or, or a community of others, and, and, and once again conveying the message as was the case in Lost Boys and as was the case in, in Fright Night, but this idea that you have to expel this perversion or this infection from your body to return to normal. Um, so we, we see the, the similar things that we've seen in Lost Boys and Fright Night and this idea of we can kind of understand how this other family, this other kind of community is appealing to our main character. Our main character, who in that very brief opening sequence, you can tell is bored with his life, who wants to get out of here, you know? He, he, what is that rhyme that he says about how he just wishes he would be anywhere else other than here tonight? And that's when they spy May. And that's when, you know, when it all kind of starts going downhill for Caleb. Um, and so we can see how May would be appealing, how these vampires would be appealing, how it's different from just the normal routine of this farm livelihood where there's not a whole lot going on and they are showing him something that he has never seen before um that uh these the 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 wealth of experience that these people have from living for hundreds of years you know there's something alluring about that it, and yet the subtext of the film is still you have to expel this infection and this impurity from your body and I don't know how to reconcile those two things. And, and you could argue, I guess, that those two things are, are, are not meant to be reconciled, that this was not a film which was trying to make a grandiose statement, um, but that maybe the filmmakers, you know, Catherine Bigelow and Eric Redd and the actors involved were, you know, influenced by their environment in ways that maybe they didn't understand or they were trying to bring something to it. You know, even, as I said, in this idea of, of the past, like maybe even representation is a step forward. Um, 
in an era uh, that was so much more conservative than now. <clears throat> but it could also just be that, you know, films and people contain multitudes. Um, there is that um, representation. There is that um, there are, you know, potentially people out there seeing themselves reflected in these characters. And yet at the same time, the film um, has to vanquish the evildoers because that is uh, that is how the genre archetypes or the genre tropes go and so i'm i'm kind of i don't want to say uncomfortable i I guess i would say frustrated because of how my brain works and because of what i bring to films and interpretations that kind of thing how i want to see something that is is a perfect metaphor or that i can um you know kind of wrap up with a with an with a a neater bow I, i mean i will quote from this um, from this um, summary of this essay a bit and just say, for the very last paragraph, they say, uh, the conclusion of the paper demonstrates how the film returns to the normative nuclear family order, but the author states that this ending is largely ambiguous. The, quote, biological colonization of Caleb and May by the father is represented by the blood transfusion which once again make the two human. The transformation seems to champion the normative way of life and the reestablishment of patriarchal order, but the author states that the unsettling ending puts this into question, leaving the viewer with more of a question mark than a period. And I, I, I think that's kind of a generous interpretation. I don't think there is a question mark. I think it is pretty straightforward at the end. But once again, this article, which I will link to, is kind of a summation of this academic paper. It is not the academic paper itself. So maybe there is more in that reading or in that writing that I, um, I just... I, I am not picking up on because I'm not reading from the source itself. But still, it gets back to this idea that if you are seeing your otherness, your sexual or, identi- or identity otherness reflected in these vampires, and the film is still saying, but then you also have to be vanquished. Or at least what you contain inside you has to be vanquished. And um, I would love to, to see a, an interview with Catherine Bigelow or with Eric Red or something which is... Um, convincing me of that otherwise, but I just don't see it. And so I understand why Terry says this is a problematic movie, that of all three of these, this is kind of the hardest to grapple with because it is um, quite a visceral experience and quite a very well-made film, but also kind of a troublesome one in um, what is the message we are supposed to be taking away from it if we are viewing it through this lens of a queer person who is seeing themselves reflected in these vampire characters. It's more problematic than Fright Night. It's more problematic than The Lost Boys. And it is just, um, it's difficult to reconcile. But as I said, maybe it is not meant to be reconciled. Maybe just conflicting emotions can exist at the same time. I'm I'm not entirely sure. But also as someone who is um, pretty much always identified as a um, heterosexual cisgendered male, I am not the one that should have the final say or the final authority on this thing either. So um, other interpretations are certainly um, valid, and I want to hear those other interpretations as well. Email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com or um, uh, chime in on the comments field of this episode by going to battleshipretention.com and finding I Do Movies Badly in the drop-down menu or uh, tweeted me at no one fixes teeth but i would love to hear other perspectives and other opinions of this film because it is problematic which means um different people and different experiences are going to take different things away from it and maybe that's all that we can or that i can really hope from this thing is that just um 
to put it quite simply and crassly, different strokes for different folks, basically. Um, but yeah, that's that's it for um, Near Dark, and that's it for August, and that's it for the Queer Vampire Cycle, which means we are approaching September and new guests and a new theme, both of which I have. Hooray! Um, I was fortunate enough, I don't know if you have seen the link that I posted on I Do Movies Badly, but I was fortunate enough to be a guest on the Spooky Doings podcast uh, run by two good friends of mine, Rick Guzman and uh, Chelsea Bennington, uh, in which we were talking about Bram Stoker's 1992 Dracula, a film that I really love um, and find mystifying that some people hate it or really think it's bad when I personally think it's the last great film that Coppola did. Um, sorry for fans of uh, Jack, I guess. Um, but uh, I joined them uh, on their podcast to talk about Dracula, and they joined me on my podcast. So I once again will have two guests, both Rick Guzman and Chelsea Bennington, joined me to discuss religious horror films. And it was a really interesting conversation because we were all coming at it from different perspectives. I was, all three of us were born and raised in a religious environment. I am still quite a devout religious person. Rick is uh, a devout atheist, and Chelsea is kind of somewhere in between as an agnostic who believes in a God and spirituality, but uh, is not really practicing and, and, and kind of uh, doesn't adhere to a lot of dogma. So um, it was an interesting conversation, uh, and, and we're talking about, um, specifically I should say, their, their religious films from a Judeo-Christian religious experience. That is not because we are um, trying to disrespect or ignore other uh, religions in this country, Islam, um, Judaism specifically, um, Buddhism, or um, atheism or agnosticism or something like that. But because of our experiences growing up and our life experiences, those were, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian approach to religion and spirituality are, you know, is, is the specific experience that we can speak to that um, resonates with us. And let's be honest with ourselves, in America... Um, that is the experience that, that shapes a lot of um, films when it comes to specifically religious films. Um, there are some great ones that exist outside of that, um, but you know, for the most part, if a studio is coming at a religion or trying to depict a religion, specifically one that can contrast the forces of evil, if you will, it is typically Judeo-Christian religion, specifically kind of um, mainstream evangelical uh, Christianity. So. We speak about um, that those experiences in our lives. We speak about um, the three films that they recommend to me, and I. Uh, in, it was a really fun conversation. And I'm really excited for it. Um, not uh, not only is Spooky Doings a podcast, but um, Spooky Doings is also an improv group uh, based here in New York, which are currently on hold due to the pandemic. But I have been able to perform with them. Um, many times. It's a lot less glamorous than it sounds, uh, but Rick and Chelsea were the, were the co-founders of that group, and so I've been able to perform with them, so um, it's a lot of fun, and we talk um, a bit about, you know, comedy and horror as an experience as well. So, thank you for listening to my episode on Near Dark. Thank you for listening to um, my episodes over this, over this past month. Um, be sure to tune in next week, where I'll be talking to Rick and Chelsea about religious horror films, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.